Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Our special guest today is Brian Green. Brian is a professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia University and is renowned for his groundbreaking discoveries in superstring theory, including the co-discovery of mirror symmetry and of spatial topology change. He is known to the public through his books, The Elegant Universe, The Fabric of the Cosmos, and The Hidden Reality, which have collectively spent 65 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and sold more than 2 million copies worldwide. The Washington Post called him the single best explainer of abstruse concepts in the world today. He has also co-founded the World Science Festival and is the director of Columbia University's Center for Theoretical Physics. I first heard an interview with him about a year ago where he was discussing the science in science fiction films, and I couldn't imagine a more perfect guest for our podcast. So without further ado, our conversation with Professor Brian Green. Welcome, Professor Green. Thank you so much for taking the time today to do this. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, um, just to get started, last week was uh, quite a week for astronomy and cosmology fans. What was so special about the eclipse we just experienced? Well, if you've never experienced a total solar eclipse, um, there's really nothing like it. I had never uh, witnessed a total solar eclipse. I had witnessed partial ones before. And a partial versus a total is, you know, like night and day. It's like being alive and almost alive. It's it's just completely different. And, um, you know, I went out to Wyoming mm-hmm. and uh, to watch the moon just completely block the sun's rays and the whole environment takes this eerie gray color. And then as the moon moves over and the sun bursts over the edge of the moon and you see this flash of light like you've never seen before, it is one of the great natural wonders. We, we actually had a, a couple of uh, buddies go and, uh, and watch it and they explained how uh, all the crickets started chirping, it got so dark and like the temperature changed and it was a real uh, interesting phenomenon that they, they experienced. Yeah, I mean, the thing to bear in mind is, you know, even if you have a 90% solar eclipse, that means that the light drops to about 10% of what it ordinarily is. But 10% of the sun is still pretty bright. Sure. And you hardly notice it. But when you get to a total solar eclipse, the light level drops by about a factor of a million. Mm -hmm. And you're right, the temperature drops as well. You feel it. The, the birds and the crickets get all confused. They think it's, you know, the sun is going down, and it's a real amazing experience. You know, I can imagine how terrifying it must have been for those folks in, you know, ages of long ago who didn't know what was going on to just watch the sun turn to a black circle in the sky. You know, pretty astounding. So I know a bit about you, but why don't we start off with your formative years? Um, when you were a kid, how did you first discover science and math, and, and how did you decide to pursue that as a career? Well, math for me at an early age was this wonderful game in which you learn a few operations, and all of a sudden you can undertake things, calculations, solve problems that nobody has solved before. Nobody has done that calculation before. 
And for the most part, as a young kid, you're not really doing groundbreaking research, but you're still doing something new, something different. And I'd spend all weekend, you know, doing these things, getting these huge pieces of construction paper, taping them together and doing these very, very big multiplication problems for the sheer, sheer beauty, the sheer wonder of just going out into the unknown. And that's really what captivated me at an early age. Did I read that you or hear that you grew up across from the planetarium? I did. That's correct. So that must have had some, some influence on, on you uh, wanting to oh, pursue yeah. Without a doubt, you know, whenever it was a, a rainy weekend, you know, my parents, my mom in particular, would send us across the street to the planetarium to kind of get us out of her hair. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a kind of playground where certainly part of the time we were just messing around the way kids do. But to feel the dark corridors of that old planetarium, it's now completely different. They've, mm -hmm. you know, made it modernized it and you walk in there and it's bright light everywhere. I just don't understand that. Planetarium needs to be dark, you know. But we would go through these dark corridors, come upon these meteorites, come upon these uh, celestial bodies, these these diagrams and, and, and photographs of distant galaxies. And yeah, so I almost feel like I grew up immersed in these kind of entities, uh, largely because they were right there across the street. So when you were going to, to the planetarium, were you thinking, I want to be an astronaut or I want to study the stars? Well, you know, early on, I had thoughts of being an astronaut, but that kind of quickly went away because I got really poor eyesight and I get seasick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I get seasick on the Staten Island Ferry. Yep. So, so I learned early on that, that being an astronaut was, was not for me. So it did quickly turn into wanting to understand what stars are, where galaxies come from, where the universe comes from, where time comes from. And, and those kinds of questions have really been with me since a young age, and they're still with me in the work that I do today. So I, I love the video on your, on your site about letting kids, you know, explore and, and do things. Um, of course, you know, not letting them light the house on fire, but... Uh, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny because um, I have uh, my son and he's currently asking me all the time, you know, can we order some dry ice on Amazon? Can we, can we, dad, I got to show you something I saw on YouTube where, you know, if, if the water is cold enough and you pour cold water onto this, you know, uh, cold surface, it'll freeze automatically. Like a lot of stuff that to me was like, wow, I've never, you know, yeah. I never would have seen that, at, you know, especially at my age growing up. It was more popular mechanics and magazines like that that got me interested more in the sci-fi world. Um, but I love that you had that, you know, that, that snippet on your site. And I think that's something that's very, uh, not, not necessarily lost, but I, I think it's a special for a lot of kids out there that they need to uh, definitely explore and, and yeah. see what's out there. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of, number of parents will ask me either through email or after a talk I give or a presentation, you know, how they say, you know, how do I get my kids interested in science? And, and, and to me, it's a, it's a natural question, but a kind of curious framing of the question, because you don't need to get kids interested in science. They are interested from the get-go, because it's in our DNA. We are a species of explorers, right? Mm -hmm. What happens in school, though, is when we start to regiment science and systematize it and turn it into a subject that has to be studied and learned and, and you'd have to do homework and take exams, that's the part of science that turns kids off. Yep. You know, in many subjects, take English or aspects of, of history, 
you know, there's a, there's a degree of interpretation involved, which means you can have an opinion, you can have a perspective, you can have a style. Whereas in math and science, the way we teach it is you are right or you are wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and for many kids, that's an intimidating structure because who wants to be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I often tell parents is, hey, look, if you can just get out of the way and let the kids follow their own instinct, Again, like you said, you don't want the house to be on fire if you can avoid it, right? But if you can let kids follow their instinct, they've already got the drive to explore deep within themselves. Definitely. So you went to Stuyvesant. I went to Stuyvesant, considered by most to be one of the best math and science high schools in the country. How much did that guide you? And did you do the whole Westinghouse science thing when you were there? Yeah, I, I did. I did. I did that whole thing. And, um, you, you know... It was, of course, for me, um, exciting and, and really vital to be immersed within a group of kids that had a, a similar urge to really push forward quickly in math and push forward quickly in science. So I, I say that side of it really helped keep nurturing and keep developing something that you know was already lit. There's already a fire lit in me before I got to Stuyvesant. But the funny thing is, too, and, and you know, somewhat relevant to the question is, when I then graduated Stuyvesant and went on as an undergraduate at Harvard, you know, for many kids, the leap from high school to college is an enormous one, mm -hmm. and, and, and it can be a very difficult one. But, you know, the best students at Stuyvesant were also the best students at Harvard. It almost didn't change. Mm -hmm. you know, it was the same faces of the same kids. So, so the transition from high school to college was made really seamless by virtue of the fact that it really was the, the same kids that you were dealing with and seeing and competing with. Yep. I could totally relate to that. Uh, when I was a kid, I saw Annie Hall. I don't know if you remember the, when Woody Allen was, a, was playing yep. himself as a child and he was walking around depressed because he would tell everybody that the universe is expanding. And if yep. the universe is expanding, it's going to be the end of everything. What did he mean by that? Well, he even went further. He said, that, so there's no point in doing his homework. Right, exactly. So we, we took that. Um, <laughs> and, um, and the universe is expanding. You know, I think all of us intuitively have a sense that pretty much what we see about the universe is what the universe is and how the universe will be. But we exist for such a tiny period of time that our experiences are grossly misleading. The universe in the distant past was completely different from the form that we currently witness. And in the far future, as the universe continues to stretch and grow and evolve, it will be a vastly different place in the far future. I mean, the, the most immediate thing that will affect us, broadly defined, is that in five billion years, the sun itself will expand. The sun will swell into a red giant. It will engulf the inner planets. It will engulf Mercury and Venus and possibly the Earth, too. If it doesn't swallow up the Earth, it will certainly scorch Earth's surface. So everything that we know and love about life here on planet Earth, that will go away within five billion years. You know, And, and it's interesting that you raised the Woody Allen version of this because I really... And with all good intentions, was just telling my kids about this, my son in particular, about when he's about five years old. And he, so he said, so what happens like when that when the sun scorches the earth? I said, well, look, we'll all be vaporized. Everything will be turned into steam. They'll all be gone. So he went into his kindergarten class and informed all the other kids oh that this was going to happen. And the, the, the phone calls that I got from the, from the angry parents that their terrified <laughs> children, you know, had been told this thing by my son. But... 
But yeah, you perhaps don't want to encounter these facts at too early an age. But yes, <laughs> all we know and love is going to go away. What What is the unified theory and what did Einstein, or why did Einstein seek it out so relentlessly? Well, as we look at the history of scientific ideas over the last few hundred years, we see a convergence. We see from many different perspectives, many different angles, our understanding is getting ever more refined and re requires an ever smaller number of principles, smaller number of ideas to explain the wealth of phenomenon that we observe. So it's almost as though you have a, a, a bicycle wheel and you've got all the spokes, which are all the ideas that have been developed over the past few hundred years. They all seem to be pointing at one central idea, the hub of the bicycle wheel, if you will, that we've yet to fully figure out. So one of the, one of the topics uh, near and dear to you and, and, and such a, a, a theme of your work is, is how superstring theory connects uh, general relativity and quantum mechanics. So why don't we start with, first off, why are they both incompatible, and then how does superstring theory connect them? Well, well, you're right. I mean, that's, that is the heart of the matter. Einstein developed his general theory of relativity, which is a theory of gravity. He developed that back in the early part of the 20th century. And parallel to that, another group of scientists, Einstein was deeply involved too, as it turns out, developed quantum mechanics, which is our theory of molecules, atoms, subatomic particles. So in gross description, general relativity describes big things where galaxy matter, where, where gravity matters. That's galaxies and the universe and black holes and things of that sort. Quantum mechanics describes the small things where you've got the particles and subatomic constituents of matter. And it turns out that the two theories each work fantastically well in their own domain. General relativity big, quantum mechanics small. But the language and the ideas and the mathematics that each of these two theories are based upon are completely different. And when you try to stitch them together, they simply don't compute. They do not work together. You try to combine the math of general relativity, the math of quantum mechanics, and the math almost universally gives you a nonsensical result for any calculation that you do. The result that it gives is infinity. And infinity is not a big number. It's a nonsensical number in these contexts. So we've known for a long time that even though we understand gravity well, even though we understand subatomic particles well, somehow we're missing something, something that can stitch it all together into one unified whole. And that's where superstring theory comes in. Yeah, that, that's where we hope. Superstring theory comes in. I'm, I'm the first to underscore that these ideas are at the cutting edge. They are speculative. They're hypothetical. They have not yet been tested. But for almost 30 years, we've developed the mathematics behind this approach called string theory. And at least on paper, it's very clear that string theory is able to surmount this obstacle and put general relativity and quantum mechanics together into one package. Can you give us a, a general explanation for us lay people what superstring theory really is? No, sorry, I can't do that. No, no, I can't. I can, I can definitely do that. Um, so so the, the core idea is to rethink what the fundamental constituents of, of matter and energy actually are. I mean, all of us learned in elementary school or at least by high school that if you take any piece of material, like a piece of wood, and you cut it in half and keep on cutting it into smaller pieces, we all know that ultimately you get to molecules, 
and that if you cut further, the molecules are made of atoms, and if you keep on cutting yet smaller, you know that the atoms are made of a central nucleus, which has electrons swarming around in quantum orbits, and even the nucleus, if you had a good course, you know that that's made up of protons and neutrons, and even those particles have something finer inside, which are called the quarks. Right. And, and that's where the conventional reasoning has stood for you know, 25, 30 years. The new idea of string theory is to challenge that the electrons and the quarks and these, these constituents, that they are the end of the line. The idea of string theory is that if you could examine these particles with even greater resolution, you'd find an even finer structure making them up. And that little structure would be a tiny filament, a tiny string-like piece of energy, if you will. And just like a string on a violin can vibrate in different patterns, producing different musical tones, these little tiny strings of string theory, they too can vibrate. They don't produce different musical notes, but rather the different vibrations produce the different kinds of particles. So an electron would simply be a little tiny string vibrating in one pattern. A quark would be a little tiny string vibrating in a different pattern. So you see that everything is kind of united under the rubric of vibrating strings. And that's the way in which this theory ties it all together, unifies it all together into one structure. You discussed the, the need for multiple dimensions to exist for super uh, string theory to work. What are the 10 dimensions and, and why is that a requirement for the super string theory? Well, that is one of the strangest features of this theory. I mean, when you first hear about little tiny vibrating filaments, yeah, you might say, well, that doesn't sound so crazy, you know the little dots that we thought were the fundamental particles, I could imagine if I look at them under a powerful microscope, there is something inside. And I can almost buy that that something inside might be a vibrating filament. Okay. But the point is, when you study the math of string theory, that's not where the weirdness ends. It's where the weirdness begins. Because it's a mathematical fact that within string theory, if the three dimensions of common experience that we all know about, left, right, back, forth, up, down, or if you want, call it length, width, and height, those three dimensions, if they are the only dimensions of space, then the math of string theory simply crumbles. It falls apart. And it could have been that when people encountered that, they said, well, we do live in a world with three dimensions, and therefore it's time to throw string theory into the garbage. You could have said that. But some very clever individuals in the 70s and 80s realized, and this is a brilliant realization, they realized that if our universe has 10 dimensions, not the three dimensions, but if it has 10 dimensions, then the math all of a sudden works. And it's very hard to explain where the number 10 or even 11, if you include time, comes from, where these numbers come from. But the equations are pretty adamant about this. And therefore, we are at least willing to entertain the possibility that the three dimensions of common experience are not the only ones. We're willing to entertain the possibility that there really might be other dimensions of space that you and I and Einstein and everybody else have long since missed. So where are these other dimensions and are they even visible? Well, one answer to that question, not the only answer, but one answer to that question, that the other dimensions are right with you right now and they're right with me and with everyone else. I mean, the idea would be that dimensions come in two flavors. 
two varieties. There's the big variety where the dimension is large, like the one that you can see right now in front of your face. That dimension is so obvious that we almost don't need to call attention to it. But the math suggests that you could also have very small dimensions. And those are much more difficult to see, and that's why we have missed them. You know, the analogy that I love to use is consider a, 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 a water hose mm -hmm. that is nice and long, and you've unfurled it, and you have a big piece of it stretched between your left hand and your right hand. Well, that long piece of the garden hose is obvious to see. Anybody can see it. You don't need any special equipment. But now imagine that somebody is looking at this garden hose from very far away. From far away, it's very difficult to see that the garden hose has a thickness. It has a circular part that wraps around it. And if this individual has a telescope or comes closer so they get a better view of the garden hose, then the circular part becomes visible. But from far away, it can be a challenge. They would only think that the garden hose has one dimension, the horizontal extent going from your left hand to your right hand. Mm -hmm. So that little example makes clear that dimensions can be big and obvious, like the horizontal extent of the hose, or they'd be curled up and much more difficult to detect, like the circular part of the garden hose. Now, garden hose is a, still a big object, but imagine you took that circular part of the garden hose and you shrunk it. You make it smaller and smaller and smaller. Now you can't even see with the naked eye. Now you need some powerful piece of equipment to reveal that that circular dimension is there. And the idea is maybe this feature of a garden hose, an object in our universe, maybe this feature is true of space itself. We know about left, right, back, forth, and up, down, length, width, and height. Those are the three big dimensions. Maybe our universe has additional curled up dimensions like the circular part of a garden hose that are just so tiny that we can't see them even with today's most powerful equipment. Amazing. So a big theme of perception is bridging science fiction with science fact. And um, I'm curious about what you think when you're watching a sci-fi film. You know, what are some of the films that got it right? Some of them that you, know, you looked at and said that's completely wrong. Yeah, well, you know, I'm 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 pretty easygoing when it comes to watching science fiction. The most important thing to me is not so much if what I'm seeing up on the screen matches the reality that I know or I'm familiar with. Really, the most important thing to me is that the director and the filmmakers they didn't get lazy. Mm -hmm. Change the rules midway through. I'll buy into new rules. I'll buy into new laws of physics, new laws of biology, whatever. So long as it's adhered to consistently throughout the plot. Mm -hmm. I can't stand it when at the end things change in order that some resolution of a plot line can be achieved, even though it goes against the grain of everything that the film made me buy into in the first place. Are there um, any films that you've ever seen that propose a new idea or a new uh, theory that you thought, hmm, that, that, that might be something worth examining? Well, I certainly in, in enjoyed uh, uh, many films of that sort. None of them have, have had a, an impact, for instance, on my own research work of anything of that sort. But, you know, I, I, I love films that play with the, the nature of time. And so uh, Inception, uh, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, you know, Interstellar is an interesting case in point because yeah. there, there was a great adherence to the science of what the environment of a black hole would look like. Mm -hmm. Kip Thorne mm -hmm. and, and, and the team of animators 
went to great lengths, even writing technical papers in order to accurately portray through a digital medium what it would be like if you were floating near the edge of a black hole. Mm-hmm. And of course and, um, your book, and, Icarus at the Edge of Time, touches on that theme as well. That, that's right. And, and in fact, um, you know, the notion of time slowing down near the edge of a black hole, you know, it was a key part of Icarus at the Edge of Time. And later on, it's also a key part of, of Interstellar. So mm-hmm. you know, these, are, these are rich, vital ideas that can, can, can create interesting plot lines. Um, but, you know, um, Interstellar, it still felt to me at the end, and I know Kip has written books and people have explained the end, it still felt to me at the end that, that it took you uh, to a place that required too much of uh, 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 a blending together of scientific ideas in a way that the ordinary human who watches this would never be able to achieve on their own, and therefore it felt ultimately unsatisfying to me at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, a simpler story like um, uh, like Contact, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, again, Carl Sagan, scientist, deeply involved in, in, in bringing this story to the screen, um, it was a far simpler story, but I found it much more emotionally moving and, for me, ultimately a more powerful experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we work with uh, Marvel quite a bit, and they call upon sometimes um, the folks at Science and Entertainment Exchange. Yeah. Um, do you ever uh, or have you ever been tapped by any um, film companies or executives to, to help out with films? Oh, it's, yeah, totally. Even long before the, uh, the, uh, the exchange existed. Um, I've done a few films. Uh, one was called a Frequency, mm-hmm. with, which New Line Cinema did and involved a sort of a time warp story with a father and a son communicating over 30 years. And I was advising on that, and then they actually put me in it. I don't know if you've seen that film, yeah. but uh, I play myself as a, as a sort of relatively young person being interviewed by Dick Cabot in the <laughs> 1960s or so. And then I play a, an older version of myself being interviewed by an older Dick you know, that film, I don't know, we did it about 1999, so it's going on 18 years ago, and I'm starting to look like the older version <laughs> where which they had to use prosthetics to create at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that was an interesting experience of, of, of helping them to, to craft some of the, the, uh, the time elements of that story. But perhaps the, 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 the most, uh, um, the experience that stands out the most for me was a film called Deja Vu. Mm-hmm. You know that film? Yeah, with... Uh Denzel, yep. And uh, Jerry Bruckheimer is doing that, so they flew out to uh, the studio there. So literally in Jerry Bruckheimer's office, we set up a, a whiteboard, and uh, and uh, who was it? Was uh, I guess it was Tony Scott? Yep. Uh, you know, um, uh, sadly has has, has has left us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was in that gathering as were some of the other writers. Very stylish film. Lecturing to them on the physics of special relativity and time warp and time dilation, and and they really wanted to understand the scientific ideas. But then at the very end of the meeting, and this is I guess predictable, I think Jerry turned to me and said, "But wait, couldn't we still have?" And then they went back to the old <laughs> idea that they wanted to use, which had nothing to do with the science ultimately. Right. So and 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 what I said to them is how I really feel, which is. Look, obviously you can and will do whatever you whatever you want, but at least know what rules you're breaking. Exactly. At least know what things you are transgressing and do your best to break those rules in a consistent manner. So why is it that nothing can travel faster than light? And, you know, for all the, the Star Wars and Star Trek hyperspeeds and warp speeds we see, is there any plausibility in, 
in those? Well, probably not in, in, in those per se, but it's not that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. The, the more precise way of saying it is that nothing that was once traveling slower than the speed of light can speed up and surpass the speed of light and thus go faster than the speed of light, which leaves open the possibility for entities that might always and forever be traveling faster than the speed of light. They don't have to speed up to cross the barrier. Mm -hmm. so, so it's as though you could have two sort of parallel worlds in some sense, those objects that go slower than the speed of light and those objects that go faster than the speed of light and those two worlds never in some sense cross over. Can't jump into it. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very strange other world because, you know, we're used to the fact that as an object loses energy, it slows down. But if you're talking about an object on the other side of the barrier, which is going faster than the speed of light, if it were to slow down when it loses energy, it might cross over the barrier and then ultimately be going slower than the speed of light. That's the big no-no. So you learn that when an object loses energy on the other side of the barrier, it actually speeds up. It goes faster. Mm which is very weird. So, so people have developed all sorts of scenarios and, and really developed the physics of what it would be like to be on the other side of that barrier. And it really doesn't look anything like what you see in, in science fiction movies with things going faster than the speed of light. So, so that's not something, as far as I know, that's ever informed people who want to engage with superluminal travel Usually the way people achieve that is not literally by going faster than the speed of light, but by creating a scenario in which you effectively go faster than the speed of light. And by that I mean if you want to go from one part of the universe to another, you can either go really fast and you can in a fictional way go faster than the speed of light or you can find a shortcut mm -hmm. and get there as quickly as you would have were you going faster than the speed of light. And that brings up these ideas of warp space and wormholes. Mm -hmm. So wormholes, as, as, as have been in so many things, you know, Interstellar, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine. All yeah, in, in Thor, Thor, they call it the uh, Bifrost, which is the Einstein-Rosen bridge. Yeah, Einstein-Rosen bridge, because it was Einstein and Rosen who really first introduced this idea. And then if you go through a wormhole, that's basically a shortcut from one place to another. So by going through a wormhole, you can get to your destination in a time that would be perhaps even less than that, which would have achieved had you gone faster than the speed of light. Marvel uses the term multiverse quite a bit in their mythos. Uh, what is the multiverse to physicists? Well, for a long time, the word universe meant everything, all there is. And a development that really goes back almost a half a century now and has picked up speed in the last decade is that things that we long thought to be the entirety of reality, that may well only be a small part of a grander reality, which itself is populated by other realms that have an equal claim to be universes of their own. And we gave a new name to this larger landscape of reality not calling it a universe, but calling it a multiverse, the multiverse. And that's really what we mean when we talk about multiverse, a realm that has many universes within it. Right. And again, going back to Thor with the nine realms and, and even uh, the, the series Flash, there's uh, Earth 1 through 9 where you know, there's different flashes at different moments in time or, or different Barry Allens, I should say. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm unfortunately I'm not familiar in detail with those shows, but yeah, it sounds like the ideas are are exactly aligned. Is this also in in line with the theory of many worlds and parallel universes that you described? It is, but they are they are somewhat different. In in quantum mechanics, which is sort of the place where this many worlds idea emerged, we find that because quantum mechanics only predicts the probability of one outcome or another. The electron might have a 30% chance of being here, or a 10% chance of being there, and a 60% chance of being way over there. People ask themselves the question, look, what happens when we measure the electron and we find it here? What happened to the other possibilities? And as people studied the mathematics, especially a guy named Hugh Everett III, he came to the conclusion that it could well be that the other possibilities are equally real. They happen too, but they happen to happen in distinct universes. So if you find the electron here, that's merely one outcome. There's a copy of you that also finds the electron there, and there's a third copy of you in a third universe that finds the electron way over there. So in this version of the multiverse, any possibility allowed by the probabilistic quantum laws actually happens and it happens in its own distinct realm, its own distinct world or universe. So where do you go to get inspiration and what lab or where do you also go to kind of uh, research and do your own um, thinking about? Well, all my work is, is theoretical, which makes life easy. I don't have to have a big laboratory with equipment. I don't have to travel to any of the big research centers that have the accelerators or the big telescopes. Luckily, I just need a pad of paper and a, and a pencil, and uh, having a computer nearby can be a big help, too. So for the most part, I work in a traditional office with a big blackboard with a lot of chalk, sometimes by myself, sometimes with students, sometimes with colleagues. But it's a, it's a, it's a job, it's an undertaking that can really be done anywhere. Two, two major tenets of science fiction are, are teleportation and time travel. Let's talk a little bit about their plausibility. Let's start with teleportation. Is that possible? Well, teleportation is not only possible, it's real. Now, it's not in the form that you currently typically will see it in some science fiction context where you've got whatever, James T. Kirk teleporting from the Enterprise down to some M-class planet. Instead, what we can do as of today is teleport individual particles from one location to another. Mm -hmm. And uh, and even so, it's, it's worth stressing that even that version of teleportation is somewhat different from, I think, what many people have in mind. When we teleport, say, uh, an electron from one spot to another, it's not literally that the electron is traversing the space between one spot and another. If I teleport an electron from... Los Angeles to New York, it's not as though that electron travels across the states and goes from the West Coast to the East Coast. Instead, what really happens is the information describing the electron in Los Angeles, that gets imprinted through a weird quantum effect called quantum entanglement on a similar electron in New York. And then by virtue of an appropriately undertaken measurement, I can then manipulate the electron in New York, to make it an exact replica of the original electron I started with in Los Angeles. Now, you might say, well, that sounds more like 
quantum Xeroxing or, or quantum cloning. Mm -hmm. and, and that would be a correct criticism if it weren't for the fact that this process necessarily destroys the state of the electron in Los Angeles. It's no longer the same electron that you began with. So the only electron in existence that really has the properties of the one that you started with is the one in New York. And that's why, in some sense, it really is accurate to describe this as a teleportation of the particle across the country. What about time travel now and being able to travel backwards and forwards in time? I think you used a metaphor in one of your books about loaves of bread. Yeah. Um, and, and again, much like with teleportation, where... Um, you know, we can teleport individual particles, but not big collections like human beings. When it comes to time travel, at least for time travel to the future, this is again within science as we understand it. This is not science fiction. We understand from Einstein's two theories of relativity, his special theory of relativity and his general theory of relativity. We understand how we can build a time machine that will take us arbitrarily far into the future. If you want to see what the Earth is like a million years from now, Einstein says get in a rocket ship, travel out into space near the speed of light, say go out for six months, come back for six months, and when you step out of your rocket ship, a million years will have gone by on planet Earth, and yet you will just be one year older. Mm. That's what it means to travel into the future. You have aged less than the environment. Mm -hmm. and and, and the only obstacle to carrying this out, again, you know, the reason why it's fictional from the standpoint of human beings traveling into the future is we don't have the technology to build ships that can go near the speed of light. And that's uh, an engineering technicality, but a pretty important one. But as far as science is concerned, there's nothing particularly exotic about traveling into the future. Traveling to the past is a different story. You had uh, talked about you know, traveling in the past, and, and if you prevented your parents from meeting, would you still exist? I remember reading a whole section that you, uh, you went through about that. Yeah, that's a, the standard conundrum when it yeah. comes to traveling to the past. Can you f set things up in such a way that there's it's a... It's the back to the future question. That's right. It's a back to the future question. It's the logical paradox. You know, when Marty McFly goes into the past and seems to disrupt the meeting of his parents, he has a photograph, if you recall. And, and he I, fades. He starts to fade from yeah, the photograph. One hand at a time. <laughs> That's right. That, now, that, that would be nonsensical because if you really could change the past, then that photograph would never have had him in it in the first place. It wouldn't actually fade in that way. But it's a nice effect mm -hmm. for the audience to get a feel for what's going on. But most of us believe that the past is unchangeable. It's not as though there is one version, say, of of January 1st, 1980, and then there's another version of January 1st, 1980, and you can sort of change one into the other by going back to that moment in time. Most of us believe that January 1st, 1980, or any other moment, of course, is a fixed moment in time. It is what it was, and it can never be changed. And if that's the case, then if you did travel back, then something will prevent you from changing the reality of what actually took place. Now, many people say, well, how could that be, right? I mean, they, how could the laws of physics prevent me, say, from, from shooting my, my grandfather before he meets my grandmother? And, and the idea would be that physics is self-consistent, and physics simply would not allow that kind of a process to take place. Now, there's another version of this where when you travel to the past, if that's possible, 
you travel to a parallel universe to go to our other theme that we were discussing. So if you make a change in that universe, like you prevent your own birth, if Marty McFly prevented his own birth in a parallel universe, there wouldn't be a paradox there because his origin, his birth would still be clear. He was born in a different universe and he simply existed in one universe, but not in another. Nothing paradoxical about that at all. Mm. So last question, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a really big fan of your books. My kids are a big fan of your children's book, Icarus at the Edge of Time. You do theater, you do speeches, you've co-founded the World Science Festival. Can you talk a little bit about your passion for bringing science to the masses and how you're able to communicate such complex ideas to a general audience? Well, for a long time, I, I've felt it tragic that so many people can get excited about these ideas and, and would be excited about these ideas if they had a way in, if they didn't feel that they weren't going to understand it, if they didn't feel that they required a graduate degree to understand what's going on. So starting for me way back oh, in roughly 1998, 1997 or something, I, I started to take seriously the idea of of trying to be, you know, an ambassador of science, a communicator of science, someone who would help bring these ideas to the interested general public. And it's been a gratifying side to my career that parallels the research side, but it really takes seriously the need for the public to be uh, aware of what we're doing, excited about what we're doing, and to have an opportunity to to really see what's happening at the cutting edge of understanding. I mean, I really feel that we have been on a journey for over 2,000 years to try to figure out who we are, where we come from, where we're going, what the point of it all is. And that journey is something that everybody should be able to at least understand and to have a sense of, of, of purpose and mission, even if they're not going to get a graduate degree and participate in the research. So yeah, through books and through television shows and some theatrical undertakings and the World Science Festival and, and various other entities of that sort, I've devoted a substantial fraction of my energy to try to make these ideas broadly accessible. Yeah, and that, that's, that's great and, uh, and we appreciate that and, and um, you know, that's, that's the last of our questions. So again, this has been a phenomenal conversation for us because, you know, dealing with the uh, the uh, science fiction world that we're in, but getting to speak with you, who really works on the other side of the world, and um, and and is someone that we research when we're doing these films, and someone that we we always want to reach out to, and, and finally get a chance to actually speak with you has been uh, a real honor. So we really appreciate you taking time to uh, speak with us. Thank you so much, Professor Green. You've been so generous, and we greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Bye bye. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.